Let's pray together. Gracious God, we give you thanks this morning for these words to us. And we invite the challenge of these words, um, the example, um, to imitate. And so we ask that you would um, attend our hearts and minds and incline them towards you this morning. This we pray in the Spirit's power and in the name of your beloved Jesus. Amen. Um, One of the interesting things about these verses and coming at this time and what's happening in the Middle East is that it focuses on this concept of chosenness and the language of Zion, which, if you didn't know, has a lot to do with the state of Israel. Uh, The state of Israel was really um, founded by Christian Zionists in Britain um, who believed that in resettling the Jews in that area after the, well, really before the First World War, Uh, and then especially after the Holocaust, uh, that they were doing something special for the special people of God and that God would somehow favor them because of that. Um, And this concept of um, the Jews being the chosen people of God often becomes a bit contentious with other people who believe in God, other traditions, other faiths, and indeed between Christians and Jews themselves. And yet, if you read the Bible, from beginning to end, you cannot get around the idea of chosenness. It's there from beginning to end. From Abraham to Revelation, there is this sense that God is choosing particular people, particular groups of people, nations even, to do particular work. And it's not just a communal and academic thing. It does, the rubber does hit the road uh, in a very pastoral way. Once upon a time, An older gentleman walked into my office and um, had lived their entire lives in the church. And they were a bit of a curmudgeon in church, and so I was sure that this was one more in a long line of complaints that they were to proffer. And yet that person trembled with fear and anxiety because they just received a diagnosis, a very scary diagnosis. And that that meant that they were facing their own mortality very soon. And the thing that they cared about the most was whether they were going to end up in hell. How could they be assured that when they died, they would go to heaven? We talked for a bit, and I was blown away by the sincerity and the straightforwardness of the concern. And I don't know what I said, and I don't know if I said anything worth worth anything. But where we landed was, I think if you're asking these kinds of questions, you're probably okay. If you're asking the questions, if you're concerned, you're probably in the right place. It's an indication uh, that you are safe in God's hands. Now, I'm not going to get into all the nuances of the afterlife in this sermon. That's another sermon for another minister, quite frankly. Um, (laughs) um, (laughs) But it's fair to say that as we think about the nuances of of how we as human beings, as Christians, as Jews even, have talked about the afterlife. We've developed language around that. Heaven, hell, purgatory, um, punishment, reward. These are all terms that we've uh, sewn around this idea of what's going to happen to us next. And um, from my own point of view, when I think of the concept of heaven, I don't think of a physical place in the clouds where there's angels strumming bows and I get to eat grapes for eternity. Um, I don't think that's what um, the Bible is after. 
And perhaps it's not even a physical place, but it is uh, real. It is real, this life with God. Um, and we've always maintained as Christians that there is more to life than the life we live right now, that there's more to existence than the existence we have right now in this life and in this world, and there's more of God. That's the beautiful thing about uh, heaven as a concept, is that there's more to God um, that we will enjoy, uh, that we will encounter. Uh, there's a distance to go, and God will be our companion and our guide in that distance, um, and that that's a beautiful thing, and that there's, um, there's something more than this, uh, this mortal experience that we can look forward to. So that's pretty complex. Uh, so to make all of that make sense and to be able to talk about that, we use words like heaven um, uh, to signal what we mean when we're talking about these kinds of things uh, without being too complex. And what this gentleman had on his mind was a kind of anxiety about his future. He wanted to know where he stood, and it occurred to him that there might be uh, some liability that he carried when he reached the pearly gates, again, another metaphor that we often think of when we think about what happens when we die. But the bottom of his question was this searching, and it's a deeply uh, ancient and theological question, an issue. That issue is, is how do we know that we're safe in God's hands, both in life and in death? And the question has one that's been asked for millennia over and over, and the best of our Christian tradition has always pointed to the way in which the scriptures talk about chosenness, uh, and the theological word for this is election, election, the doctrine of election. Now, when I say election, I'm not talking about Luxon and Hipkins and Peters. That's another sermon for another minister. Um, although when I hear the last verse of the Thessalonians passage, the, um, that Jesus saves us from the wrath that is coming, I can't help but think it's a clear reference to the impending American election of 2024. In theological terms, election is this basic idea that God has agency in the world, that God has agency in our lives, and that that agency manifests itself through things like faith and confession and prayer and participation in the church. A side note, Jesus himself talks about how he has sheep in another fold, and so I think it's fair to say that I'm not trying to be an exclusivist here. Uh, and certainly around the world, I think we could point to all kinds of angels that have come from all kinds of traditions. And I think that Jesus claims those people as his own, even if they've never heard of him. What I see in the New Testament um, happening is this sense of wanting to point to this very old way of thinking about why we do the things we do and what all of that means for us ultimately. If we read Paul's letters and Thessalonians, and this church in Thessaloniki, in Greek Macedonia, uh, would have been the, probably the first congregation that he had success with, that he went and lived with for three months, who he worked alongside uh, doing the handiwork. They were probably hand workers, peace, peace workers, um, craftspeople, artisans, and he probably worked alongside them for a few months in order to gain their trust. He also preached in the, the Jewish synagogues there uh, for three Sabbaths, we're told, in Acts. And so he spent a lot of time in this area, and he was very successful in establishing a faith community there that was predicated on worshiping Jesus. And yet then other people came around and ran him off. Uh, this letter that we have, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, is probably some of the earliest Christian literature in the world. 
They predate the Gospels, and it's most likely that these early Christian communities, when they wanted to know about doctrine and life of faith and what Jesus meant, they turned to the letters of Paul first. That Paul's letters would have been, probably six or seven of them, would have predated the Gospels, and there would have been scribes who copied them into collections, and then those went on a roadshow. Um, around the, the communities, and they would have been so thankful to have them and read them in their home groups, which is probably what their churches looked like, um, and to read the words of Paul um, and to think about uh, what it might mean to follow Jesus. Um, from these letters, these early letters, we can surmise that Christians in the first century, the very first Christians, were highly diverse in every way, ethnically, socioeconomically. They were highly religious, and they lived in a highly religious world, and they expected the world to come to an end within their lifetimes. They expected the world to come to an end within their lifetimes. And they were surrounded by people who were in liege and worshipped a powerful state, an empire, and other people who were committed to religious faith and all kinds of things who did not have their best interests in mind. Right? So, so in some ways, they had a very real feeling of being a minority, of being on the margins of their society, and also being overwhelmed by power and influence. We also know that their conversion to Christianity was powerful. It was a felt reality, and both locally and further afield. And this letter was penned by Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, who were these three missionaries who were working in and out of this area. They were the Paul, John, and Ringo of uh, Greek Macedonian missionaries, right? They were very well known in their time and place. And their letter begins by complimenting the church on their faith. It's so powerful, their faith, that it has caused people all around them to take note. And interestingly, Paul focused his attention on the idea that these Christians were also chosen by God. So the language of chosenness that we hear in Zion and about the Jews comes back in Paul's language around the church, in particular around this church, the Thessalonians. By pointing to their chosenness, Paul is attempting to link them, to link them to the overarching work of God in the world. Election or chosenness is not just some privilege that God bestows. It's one of the ways and one of the main ways that God works in the world, right? God chooses particular people at a particular time for a particular task, right? God always works that way. And the clearest sign of that is Jesus himself, that God chose to save and redeem the world through a first-century Palestinian Jew who had no power, education, family name, connections, so to speak. Right? And what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians is that very foundational principle is working in and through their faith in the Thessalonian community. They participate in the same work and power of Christ by virtue of the faith that they have. And the main point of this is that they do not belong to God because they chose Jesus. He wants them to understand that. It's not their ability to keep their commitments to the faith that makes them powerful, that makes their faith powerful. Rather, it is that God, and because God is gracious, and because God graciously chose Jesus, and Jesus graciously chose them, that in the great vineyard that is the kingdom, they are but the branches, and Jesus is the vine, and God, of course, owns the entire lot. And so just like them, our lot, our existence, 
is to recognize that we are chosen for a purpose, and that purpose is to bear fruit, to be imitators of Christ, to inspire faith and loving action in other people. But this aspect of following Jesus is difficult, and it still divides Christian communities because we're not exactly clear on what that looks like. Judgmentalism is a knee-jerk reaction of the human condition. It seems to be a default setting of us as human beings, and so we end up being drawn like a moth to the flame to the task of policing the borders, which is where the church has fallen over post-Christendom. We are still committed, and we commit tremendous amounts of energy to policing the borders between ourselves and others. And not just ourselves and secular people, people of no faith, not just ourselves and people of faiths that are radically different like the Orthodox, but people who live down the street and who are gathering right now in this community. We are dedicated, and we have been dedicated, to policing the borders of language and practice and tradition and culture because somehow it makes us feel like we might be on to something, that we might be more in than they are. And we do this over all kinds of different issues. And when we do it, it diminishes the power of the call of God on our own lives. We see that in the New Testament that Jesus calls his disciples and that those disciples have little or nothing to do or in common with each other. Isn't that interesting? One of the issues in the early church after Jesus is resurrected and disappears and goes to heaven and all that stuff is that the disciples struggle with each other. Who's the most powerful? Who's the first? Um, between Paul and Peter, you know, do, do Converts have to become more Jewish than they are Gentile. I mean, there's all of these battles in between the disciples and the apostles and the followers. And what they don't recognize is that what unites them is that Jesus chose them as his disciples. It's not even their faith in him that unites them. Not even their faith in him is enough to overcome their differences. And yet, Jesus still expects that a lot of good will come from their being united in difference if they hold fast to what keeps them together in the first place, which is love. Now, by Paul's account, the gospel came with more than simply a new set of words to ponder. It is philosophy, but more than philosophy. In verse 4 of the, the reading this morning, Paul says that the gospel came with more than words, and these words were accompanied by power and conviction. And while the surrounding culture put those convictions to the test, the Holy Spirit put steel in those convictions, as one translator puts it. So much steel that the Thessalonians were the object of imitation for those around them. Imitation is not only a form of flattery, it's something that we as human beings cannot escape. We imitate others whether we like it or not, but the question for us becomes who or what will we imitate? The whole business of, a, of, um, of election, of chosenness, is meant to be this sense of assurance that when we're anxious about our future, when we're anxious about something that's happened to us, we shouldn't go to God and worry and go, gosh, have I really stuffed it up? Have you turned your back on me? Have you abandoned me? Rather, God has said, our relationship's not based on your behavior, your performance. It's not based on whether you, you stuffed it up yesterday, today, or you're going to do it tomorrow. You're going to. Our relationship is based on the fact that I have chosen you. 
And later in some other letter, Paul will say, before the very foundation of the world, this has very little to do with what you're doing today or tomorrow. It has to do with the core of who you are, because I love who you are. It is a word of assurance. And like Paul's readers, our faith works best when we accept this assurance as the gift that it's meant to be. Grace, not an achievement. Grace is the ground of our calling. It's the ground of our chosenness. It's the ground of the chosenness of Israel. To be a light to the nations. To be worthy of imitation. And yet, we get it wrong. We falter. We fall down. But grace is what unites us to Jesus and to each other. When we inspire people to imitate us, we realize it's not some special quality in us that we possess that we're putting on display, but rather the spirit within us that we're allowing to work through us. That's what's worthy of imitation. And nonetheless, people will watch us and our reactions to things, and our lot is to ensure that we are worthy role models, imitators of grace, that we act gracefully. I'm thinking, and I have been thinking this week, of all the people in this community that are worth imitating and of all the amazing things that you do and that you are. And I'm not going to embarrass you by calling it out, but you'll know the various ways over decades that we've worked in areas of domestic violence with survivors, those who are food vulnerable, those who are housing vulnerable, uh, the many decades of work in places like India providing all kinds of aid and support and friendship. And I can't help feeling a little bit like a Paul, because it's inspiring stuff. And it makes me want to give thanks to God for you. And it also makes me hope that others will see that light in you, however small it might be, and be encouraged to follow suit and to imitate the grace that you have. May God make it so. Amen.